0: We're going to start a new series today, and, and um, I want to kind of start the series talking about why the name of the series is there, and to, to do that, I want to kind of, kind of walk back to something that happened to me this week. I was driving in the car and, uh, in the last few days, and driving with Eli, and Eli and I were in the car together, and, uh, and I realized something driving Eli around that just kind of dawned on me. OK, and it's, not, it's not Eli. It's me. And so Eli's getting nervous now. I'm going to say something about him. It's me. All right. And so I'm driving around and I realized that I am officially becoming my dad. Can I get an amen out there? Right. Like I realized. And here's how I realized it. When I, I was playing a song on the radio and I looked over to Eli for affirmation that the song on the radio was a good song, and he just gave me a look that said, this is terrible, okay? And here's what I had a flashback to. When I was growing up, my dad would drive me around in his vehicle. He'd pick me up from school. We'd drive around. Dad got off earlier than Mom, so we'd run errands together. And Dad would always make me listen to the oldies station, right? And so the tunes of the 60s, Right? And so some of you are like oldies or the 60s? Yes, they were when I was growing up. All right? They're oldies today. But so I, Dad would try to convince me of the merits of Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and the Temptations and all of that stuff. And I would always just say, Dad, can we just listen to like the regular radio station? Let's just listen to the music of today. And so the other day we're driving around and I realized that I'm trying to convince my son that the music of another error is the greatest music ever, and he must listen to it at all times, right? Eli, what error is it that I'll make you listen to? The 80s music, which is the greatest music of all time, right? I mean, and so we're driving in the car, and it, I can't remember what it was, but I, it was some song that I have an emotional connection to, and I was like, this, man, and, man, in and this great Eli? And he goes, everything wasn't better in the 80s. And I'm like, oh, oh. Uh, coming to see you, right? It's hot, it hurts, right? Um, and so I, I'm a kid of the '80s, I and mean, I grew up in the '80s. I loved '80s television. I love '80s music. I love '80s movies. And so it's just, you know, you, you, you grow. I think most of us, the culture we grow up in, we think that's like the best, and we try to communicate that to people. And there was this thing in the 80s, some of our blockbuster movies, like we didn't have, like blockbuster movies today are basically all superhero movies, right? Like superhero movies come out every three weeks, right? And so when we were going to this we didn't have a lot of superhero movies. We had Superman, and two of those movies were terrible, and so we really didn't... Have good superhero movies, but we had a fascination with aliens. Okay, and so in the '80s, there were blockbuster movies that were aliens. Now, some of them were typical alien movies, like we've kind of had in our history, where the aliens are coming, or we got to go attack the aliens because they're going to come destroy us, right? And so, for instance, growing up, this was a movie that was out, which was Alien and Aliens, right? And she's going after Sigourney Weaver plays the main character and going after the aliens. That's the one where the alien comes out of the stomach, right? So that's like the typical one. But there was also this fascination in the 80s of becoming friends with aliens, right? Like you became, it wasn't, they were all bad. Like we wanted to have them as a friend, right? And so the classic movie where that becomes the case is E.T., right? I bawled like a baby at E.T., Right. The first movie I remember crying at, And it was that scene at the end when he's about to get on the ship. You know, he's used the speak and say and the Reese's Pieces to phone home or whatever happened there. And he's getting ready to get back on the ship. And Drew Barrymore, the little girl character, comes out, cute and innocent. She's holding up a plant and she's holding the plant out to E.T. And it's that mall. I mean, I was. I'm about to, I could lose it right now. But, you know, just, it's just that moment, right? They built this relationship. And even this moment, right, Elliot's getting E.T. and they're trying to get away because the big bad government's coming after them. which was always the thing. The government's after the kids. Like, you know, just let the kid have a pet alien. What's wrong with that, all right? And so they're trying to get after him and the, the, the bicycle takes off and goes over the moon. Man, it was great. And uh, so that was the dramatic, heartfelt, I want to be friends with an alien. But on TV, there was the comedic, like, I want to be friends with an alien and have him as part of my family, which was the greatest television show of all time, basically. And it was called ALF, right? How many of you know ALF, right? Alien life form. ALF was for Melmac. He loved to eat cats. I mean, obviously, right? And he just was a part of the family. He lived and was a part of of the family so there's this fascination with I want to be friends with aliens well one of the first kind of movies to make that popular or make that discussion came out actually before the 80s and it's a Steven Spielberg movie it came out in 1977 and it was called Close Encounters of the Third Kind how many of you remember that movie right yeah eight of us good all right and so Close Encounters of the Third Kind was this movie, and the whole movie centered around this idea that aliens were beginning to make contact with us and that people were drawn to the aliens. And the main character was played by Richard Dreyfus. this guy named Roy Neary. We've got a picture up, I think, next. There it is. So he's, this is the guy, Richard Dreyfus. young age, obviously it's 1977, 39 years ago. I'm going to spoil the movie for you if you haven't seen it, all right? It's been out for 39 years. Um, and so... He, all these people start having interactions with ufos and richard dreyfus character is an electrician who's working on a line to try to figure out why all the lights are going out in the town and while he's there a ufo passes him and the light from it actually gives him like a sunburn like a burn on his face and he in that moment it's just a momentary thing that happens the light moment his life is changed forever He becomes obsessed with finding who these people are, what they're about, what's in it for him, how he can contact them. They figure out through music and computers, they contact the aliens. The aliens draw them all. He starts having subliminal messages of a mountain. They're all drawn to this mountain. The government, again, who never wants people to be friends with aliens, is trying to stop them from getting there. And he gets there and his whole life is changed because of a momentary encounter with an alien. We're obviously not going to talk about encounters with aliens over the next eight weeks. But what we are going to talk about is how a momentary encounter with Jesus changed the lives of people forever. And the idea behind the series is this. We're going to look at encounters throughout the Gospels. That Jesus had with individuals. And most of these accounts are not going to be extended accounts. There are a few that may go a chapter. But most of these accounts are a few verses. Today we're going to look at just four interactions that happen in just a few verses. But all of these people were radically transformed by a momentary meeting with Jesus. My goal, my hope, is that by looking at these stories... Once again, we will open our lives up to the possibility that Jesus can radically transform us in a momentary meeting with him. So if you've got your Bibles, turned to John, or I already have them there, John chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 35. And we're going to be looking at what is in the book of John the first encounter Jesus really has with anybody. In fact, these are the first encounters, the first disciples that Jesus calls to himself in the book of John. And here's what I want you to kind of understand about the book of John. John tells us at the end of the book, his whole purpose for writing the book. At the end of John, he says, the writer says, John, that listen, I didn't put everything in here because to put everything in here, it would have taken up too much space. I don't have time to put everything in here. He said, "I selected a few things to put in here, and I wanted to put these things in here just for a few minutes, uh, or just for a few few stories, because what I want you to understand is Jesus did a whole lot more than this. But I wrote what was necessary to write for you to come to faith and believe in Jesus." John tells us his whole purpose in writing the book of John is that people would investigate the claims of Jesus and believe. Now, for those of us that grew up in America and we grew up kind of an intellectual culture in the Western culture, we think believe, we think of, OK, things that uh, thought processes or things that I ascribe to or, yeah, I, I believe those things. But for John, belief is not intellectual. Belief is a lifestyle. And what he's saying is my goal is that your lives would be transformed and that you would live your life completely trusting the Lord. So over the next eight, nine weeks, we're going to look at some of these stories, some from John, some other places where Jesus encounters people and we see them place their faith in him, their belief in him. Verse thirty five is how it starts there. The next day, John was there again. Now, real quickly, I know we're in the book of John. This can get confusing. This John is not the John who wrote the book of John. Okay, this is John the Baptist John the or the one that is out in the countryside baptizing people. And the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Um, we remember from the story, if you grew up in church, you remember this, that John the Baptist came before Jesus. John was his cousin. And John kept telling people, I need you to come out and repent of your sins. Now, John was a crazy kind of guy, dressed weird, ate locusts, all that kind of stuff. But as he calls people into himself, he would say, listen, I need you to get ready because I'm not the one, but I'm going to tell you about the one, and when the one comes, I'll show you who the one is, and then I want you to follow the one. I'm not him, but when he comes, I'll show you. And so John's got his disciples around, and he has two of them, two disciples sitting there right together. And we saw Jesus passing by. Now, this is the second day in a row he's seen Jesus. So they're in the same place, they're hanging out at the same places this time it's just two disciples with him. And as he sees Jesus passing by, he looks to his two disciples and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God. Now, here's the question. If you've been a disciple, a follower, a student of John, and he says to you the whole time, I'm not the one, but a one is coming. And when the one comes, I'll tell you. And he looks up while he's teaching you one day, giving you all instruction. He says, there's the one. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to the one, right? John says, there's the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Two disciples, they followed Jesus. Now, in our culture, in our church culture, we've turned that word into a word about what it means to commit your life to Jesus. What it means to live for Jesus. And there's some of that kind of depth involved in this understanding of that word here. But in the most practical sense, when it says they follow Jesus, it meant Jesus was walking and they started walking after him. Like, Jesus is walking, John says, there's the Lamb of God. And they're like, okay, see you, John, we're walking. Now, you ever had that feeling when you're like in a mall or you're out shopping somewhere. Or you're walking at the, the park. Or, and you feel like somebody started to follow you. You ever had that feeling? Right? Like, it's just this weird kind of feeling. Like, what, some, somebody like following me. Right? And so you start taking different turns. You go swerve different places. Like, are they after me? What's going on? Well, Jesus, who has more heightened senses than us. Right? As the divine son of God. Since if somebody's behind and something's going on, and he does what all of us would do in that moment. He turns to the guys. Next verse. He says to them, what do you want? Now, commentators will tell us that that question has two purposes. First of all, it is just a legitimate question of what are you guys doing? N- Notice Jesus didn't ask them to come, did he? No, right? He didn't ask them to come. They just chose to start following him. And Jesus is like, guys, what are you doing? What do you want? But the author also is asking us to look at this as a central question to the entirety of our life following Jesus. Jesus turns to these guys and says, what are you after? What do you want? Tim Keller, writing a book about encounters with Jesus, says... But this story, initial story in John, tells us and answers for us the central question that most people have, and it is simply this Where do I look for the deepest answers of life? Jesus turns to these guys and says, Guys, what, what are you doing? Why are you here? What do you want? And they ask kind of a strange question if you don't understand what's going on. They say, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? Now, when they ask the question, where are you staying, what they're saying is, we want to follow you to your house and we want to spend some time talking to you. We want to get to know you. We want to eat supper with you. We want to have a discussion with you. We want to sit around the table and just find out about each other. They were inviting themselves to his home to eat. Now, in our culture, that's kind of not good, right? Hey, I was just wondering what you were doing tonight. Oh, not much, really. What's going on? All right, man, I'm going to come over to your house for supper. Is that cool? Like, we don't do that, right? But in their culture, that was a sign of appreciation. And yeah, absolutely, come on over. And so hospitality was a huge deal. And they're like, hey, we want to come and be a part. It implied that they wanted to start a relationship, a friendship, a teacher-student relationship. And Jesus just says a real simple thing. Come. <laughs> keep Keep walking. You'll see. Come and see. So they went and saw. They did what he said. They went and saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. And so they're getting together and things are happening. And Andrew, all right? So here we are. We're to the main character of this story. And his name is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, a couple of things about that, just real quickly. If you were to have to make a list of the apostles of Jesus without looking at anything, my guess, some of you would forget Andrew's one of them. Okay? In the Gospels, we don't see Andrew very much. We see him a few times, and he's always a facilitator. He's always connecting someone else to someone else. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Bible, John realizes, hey, they may not know who Andrew is. So how does he introduce Andrew? Andrew. Peter's brother. Now, how many guys want to be introduced as so-and-so's brother? Right now, I me, mean, I love my brother. I absolutely love my brother Brian. When I was in high school, Brian had been before me. his five and a half years before me. Brian's smart guy, um, fun guy. But Brian also liked to push the limits in classrooms sometimes. And so I was always the one that when they would call roll on the first day of class, they would say, Um, uh, you know, Kaufman here, Lyle Larson here. Are you related to Brian? Yeah, that's my brother. Oh, all right. And so like, like, oh, I got to deal with that again, right? So nobody, I didn't want to be Brian's brother. I wanted to be me, right? My guess is in five years, six years or right now, Eli does not want to be introduced as, oh, you know, Luke's brother, Right. We want to be our own people. Andrew, and Andrew didn't probably worry about this, but John's like, Andrew seems so insignificant that we got to tell him about who his brother is. Andrew was one of the ones who heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did, the what thing? First. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Basically, he's saying you're going to be Peter. It's like a nickname, but it was like a really cool nickname. I mean, it's such a cool nickname that one of the most famous wrestlers of the last 20 years took this as his official name for wrestling. Because he basically says, you're no longer going to be Simon. You're going to be the rock. Right? That's what he named him. You're this rock. You're, this, you're the one that's going to hold all this together. The next day, it's another day, Jesus decided to flee for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now, three guys, three different ways they've come. Andrew just decided to follow Jesus. Peter gets taken by his brother to follow Jesus. Philip, Jesus walks up to him and says, come on, let's go. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth the son of Joseph. And then I love what Nathanael says to him. Next verse says this, Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Growing up, we all had those towns, right? The rivalry town, the town across from us, the town that nobody, like nothing good can come from New What are you talking about? Whatever your particular town was, you had that town. And he says, listen, Nazareth, Messiah's not coming from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? And I love what Philip says. Philip says, come and see. Now let me ask you a question, okay? It's been a couple of minutes, so you may have forgotten this. Do you remember what Jesus said when they said, hey, where are you staying? What did Jesus say to those two disciples? Come and see. And Philip here says, come and see. Do you think John's making a point? This is the first chapter of his gospel, and he says, I'm about to take you on a journey to believe. And you may be skeptical right now, but just come and see. That's my goal for this series. That's why I chose this to be the one that we start with. Now we're going to talk in just a minute about three quick lessons that we learned from this passage about what it means to be a true disciple. But my goal is through this series that you just simply come and see. That you come with an open heart, an open mind, ready to hear and ready to be transformed. And you just simply come and see. Three things that we learned from this passage about discipleship that I want us to talk about just real quickly. Because the essence of this is Jesus the rabbi is calling disciples to himself. Now, that word's a little foreign to you. Jesus the teacher is calling students to himself. The first thing that we see in this passage about what it means to be a disciple is true discipleship always starts with a relationship with Jesus. John writing this gospel wants people to understand that what he is asking them to believe in is not an intellectual system. It's not some idea out there. It's not some moral code. It's not anything except the person of Jesus Christ. He makes that clear to them because at the very beginning of the book of John, he starts his whole discussion, and some of you know this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word that he uses for word there is logos, which would have been the understanding of the Greeks for the great philosophical concept. And what John does is he turns it on his head and he says, listen, you don't need to go learn about some philosophical concept. You don't need to go learn about some complicated design of the universe. You don't need to go learn about some moral code of behavior that needs to be out there. You don't need to find a teacher that's going to give you the most eloquent speeches you've ever heard. You need to follow Jesus. The Word is a person. Your faith and my faith is not built on theological ideas. It's not based on a moral code. It's not based on some political system. It's not based on some ideological system. It is based upon Jesus. And for you to be a true disciple, you must first have a relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you a quick question, okay? What is the one requirement for someone to be a teacher? Now, you can make a list of great, what what qualities you want in a teacher, but what is the one requirement that is absolutely essential for someone to be a teacher? Here it is. You ready? Because none of you were right. All right? Unless, you, unless I didn't hear you. Here it is. You have to have a student. Right? At the most basic level, you have to have a student. If you don't have a student... You might be trying to teach, but you're talking to yourself. And you do that for extended periods of times, and people think you're weird, all right? If the one requirement to be a teacher is to have a student, what's the one requirement of being a student? You've got to have a teacher. And in order to be in a relationship where you're a disciple, a learner, a student, you've got to have a teacher, and that is Jesus. Now you go, oh, I hear that, Pastor. Yeah, excited. we're in a relationship, not a religion. But here's the thing even as followers of Jesus Christ, even as people that have been in church all your life, it's real easy, if that's who you are, to forget that your primary allegiance is to a person and not a church and not a system and not a theological idea and not a Bible study and not a Sunday school class. Your primary allegiance is to Jesus. Listen, I love this church. I love being pastor of this church My primary allegiance is not to this church. I love my family. I deeply love my family. But my primary allegiance is not to my family. I believe great doctrinal statements. But my primary allegiance is not to great doctrinal statements. My primary allegiance is to Jesus, it's to a person. It's to the person described in all of these encounters we're going to know. A real, historical person who came to earth, lived a life, died for my sins, and rose from the grave. He is the only one that is worthy. We sang about it, but do you believe it? Here's the second thing. True discipleship always moves from curious to committed. From curiosity to commitment. I love this. The guys start walking after Jesus. Jesus calls them to himself. He says, come eat with me. They go and eat. And by the time they are done with supper, by the time the evening's over, they've gone from two to three. By the next day, they've gone to five. It's just one after another. And they go from curiosity to, no, I'm all in with this guy. I am completely in with this guy. Let me tell you something. If you're a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus Christ, at some point in your life, Jesus will not be somebody on the sidelines. Your commitment to your faith in Jesus will not be something else you've added to your life. If he is real, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, then what is going to happen is your life is going to move from curious to Completely, passionately devoted, committed to Jesus. Where He is the number one thing for which you live. And if there has never been a moment when you look back on your life and you could say, You know what? At that moment, at that moment, my life was completely committed to following Jesus. Then I want to ask you the question whether you really have a relationship with Him or not. Because the natural path of discipleship is Jesus Christ becomes the most important, the only priority that is worth living for completely in your life. And listen, can I just be honest with you here? In America today, we live among greatly distracted believers in Jesus. And we got everything in our lives trying to pull us in directions. You got academics from school, you got career, you got job, you got extracurricular activities, you got sports, you got multimedia entertainment, you got internet, you got screen time, you got all that stuff. And in the midst of all that stuff, it is so easy to get our commitment out of whack and we forget that the primary commitment of our lives is Jesus Christ. And that every decision you make ought to be taken through the lens of is this what is necessary for me to live my life for the glory of the name of Jesus. Every decision you make. And if you've never been in a place in your life where you've been passionately devoted, completely committed to Him, then question whether you've ever had a relationship with Him. Here's the last thing. A true disciple cannot remain silent. Cannot remain silent. Two guys in this passage, which by the way, do you realize that three of these four guys, some of you would not get if I asked you to name all the twelve disciples? I mean, if you made a ranking of the disciples, like these guys aren't at the top, right? Now, Peter is. But Peter's only there because his brother brought him. Right? If you're making a ranking of the disciples, who are the top two or three? You got Peter, you got James, you got John, right? Now, these guys aren't, you know, Matthew, he wrote a book about it, you're right? Now, you get down, these guys aren't at the bottom either, right? I mean, there's a pretty good candidate for the worst disciple, right? There's a pretty good candidate for that, right? And so, these are kind of guys in the middle. You got Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. Like, these are guys in the kind of the middle. But here's what I love two out of the three, the stories we have, John makes a point to say, as soon as they figured out Jesus is the one, what did they go do? They went and told somebody. Hey, i got to go find my brother. Philip's like, hey, Nathaniel, you got to come. I've met the guy. People tell you things that they care about. I was thinking about that this week. Because I was looking at Facebook. And I won't use any names because I want to protect the guilty. All right? But I was looking at Facebook. And sometimes on Facebook, you ever have this moment on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you are on social media. And you like see somebody share something. You're like, who cares about that? You might have confession in the house of the Lord today? Like, who, who cares about that? And you know what I had the realization this week? You know who cares about that? The person who shared it. Right? Now, they may be the only person in the world, but they shared it because they cared about it. You get that, right? Here's the thing. Things that we care about, things that we love, things that we are excited about, what do we do? We tell people. And here's what I want to tell you. The statistics out there say, that 85-90% of Christians, depending on where you look, have never shared their faith with another human being. And if you've never shared your faith with another human being, we, we, we can give you evangelism classes, we can talk about going out, but here's the truth. If you've never shared your faith with another human being about your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean enough to you. Because we share things that we love and that we care about. I thought about uh, this week. We were up decorating for VBS stuff. And Ava, some of you know Ava, some of you don't know Ava. Ava's our fourth child. Ava is the typical, if you read all the birth order books, um, youngest baby, life of the party, fun. Um, she makes us laugh all the time, you know. Driving in the car the other day, she just out of the blue kicks the back of my seat and goes, bam, snap. Like, what is that? where does that come from, right? She's just who she is, right? And so the other day we were upstairs, we're decorating, we're decorating for VBS, and she wants to sing VBS songs, and so Miss Ellie's encouraging her to sing VBS songs, okay? And so Miss Ellie took a video of her singing one of the VBS songs that some of you are going to get stuck in your brain this week, and will be incessantly repeated over and over, all right? And some of your kids are going to come home singing these songs, you're like, would you stop singing that song, Right? But this is the song that was in Ava that she wanted to sing for Miss Ellie. All right. I don't know what the can-can going on over there is with the dancing, but, you know... But here's the song. Here's the song. It says bubbling up. bubbling. I don't know if you could hear it all. Up to the surface. I can't keep it in. This joy that's within me has to get out. And when you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you cannot keep it bottled up within. There are way too many of us that are way too serious about our faith. Serious to the point we don't want to share it and we don't have the joy of Christ in our lives. These guys... Begin to follow. They have an encounter with Jesus and they want everybody to know. They go to their family, they go to their friends and say, you got to come. you got to see this guy. True disciples begin with a relationship with Jesus. Do you have one? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Secondly, has there ever been a point in your life, is it at this moment, when a relationship with Jesus is not just another thing on your plate, but it is the commitment of your life? And has Jesus' grace and love and mercy so captured your heart that you can't remain silent? That's the test of a true disciple, a true learner. And that's what we're called to be. Let's pray together.